0: Your brains. What's your favorite scary movie? well, little brother. well. Hello, and welcome, listeners, to episode number sixty nine. Nice. Uh, Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here, uh, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And I guess I should also say here, it's a good thing that Jamie is not next to me while recording that there, because she would hate that I made that joke, and you know, it is very juvenile, but that's just who I am. So for this episode here is going to be my Centennial Club number seven, as I'm going to have featured reviews of... My 2021 release is The Night... And then the 1921 film that I have here is The Haunted Castle, which is an early film from F.W. Murnau. And then also on this episode, I have some mini-reviews. All of them are actually, as I'm still trying to finish up the Podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge Series list, as I do have Rogue, 30 Days of Night, and The Hills Run Red. Now, this is going to be kind of an interesting thing, is this episode is actually dropping on March 1st, but I'm going to go ahead and hold off on doing my monthly review until the next one just so that way if I watch anything you know, on the 28th here of February I can you know, still incorporate all of those. So just as a heads up if you were curious as to why the monthly review is not on here. But I think it's all I really wanted to get you up to speed with here. So what I'm going to do is kick you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini-review this week is going to be Rogue from 2007. This is written and directed by Greg McLean. This stars Michael Vartan, Rhoda Mitchell, and Sam Worthington. This is a action-adventure drama horror thriller film that is from Australia. And it is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being an american journalist on assignment in the australian outback encounters a man-eating crocodile while trapped on a rapidly flooding mud island now this is a movie that i actually didn't hear about until my sister recommended it i'm not sure the reason why she did but i'm assuming it was one of the actors or actresses in the movie and she was going down a list of the films they had been in regardless i enjoyed this after my initial viewing and it's probably been about 10 years since my last viewing Now, this is one that I'm still working through that Summer Challenge series for the 2000s for the podcast Under the Stairs. Almost done with that list, finally. Now, what I'm going to say here is this movie is fun. It's really a popcorn movie that there isn't really a whole lot of social commentary or anything of necessarily of substance. But we do have a group of characters that I'm interested in with a situation that I also dug. What works for me in this movie's favor here is that there is some reality that could be, you know... With what we get here there isn't anything supernatural about it this animal is living in a remote place feeding on everything in its territory now what i have learned about these crocodiles is that they grow to their environment which would make sense here that one could get to the epic proportions that we get in this movie now where i want to go next would be the characters themselves we do have quite the group here there is kate who is portrayed by mitchell now she's interesting is that she's never left this territory that she grew up in So she's limited there, and I can see why she'd be attracted to somebody like Pete, who's portrayed by Varton. He's quite arrogant, and I'll be honest, I don't really care for him. I believe he's here as a, you know, semi-popular actor at the time, but he kind of gets lost with the cast around him. He also tries to be a bit manly and get into, like, a contest here with Neil, who is portrayed by Worthington. But Sam Worthington is so much more rugged, and then he's also grown up around Kate, so he's, you know, had to deal with the same type of conditions that she has Being, you know, these people are living more off the land. Then going along with them, we have Mary Ellen, who is portrayed in this movie by Carolyn Brazier. Now, she's uptight, and I think that works. Then we have Simon, who is portrayed by Stephen Curry. Now, he's a bit weird with his camera and just socially awkward. Now, Russell is a character portrayed by John Jarrett, and now he lost his wife, and he's there to try to spread her ashes in the river. I also like, as things break down, he has some survival instincts. And there is Elizabeth, who is portrayed by Heather Mitchell. Now, she seems to have battled cancer and is just living life, not expecting every day to be, you know, promised to her. We don't need a lot of time with these characters to learn this information, and I'm even leaving out more people, but I thought that there was some good writing here to convey this. Going along with it, we get an interesting way to introduce the backstory here of the area, as well as the crocodiles from newspaper clippings. Despite having all of these characters, this movie does have some missteps. I don't want to spoil things here, but I think the movie misses the mark with having so many characters, but not actually a lot of them die. The movie really does seem to fall apart a bit later into it. I do wonder how much of this could be that they were limited what they could do with the crocodile and killing people. It's almost like maybe cut down on some of the characters if that's going to be the case, in my opinion. Speaking of the deaths, I want to shift this over to the effects. Now, we do get some practical ones. There is this animatronic crocodile used here, which I'm a fan of. I'm assuming for more of the close-up shots, that's what that was used there. I do like that we have the writer-director of McLean here, who knows how these animals act. Now, he is Australian, which that does make a lot of sense when looking at his filmography, and it does just feel like an Australian movie for sure. Now, there's also some CGI with the croc here that works sometimes, and other times it didn't necessarily hold up for me. Regardless, I think that the cinematography was well done and the effects are more on the positive than the negative. Now, since I've raved about the characters, I'll go to the acting. What is interesting here is I'm a fan of Mitchell, but I didn't realize that she was Australian, nor that she had an accent until seeing this movie. It is interesting her seeing her more in a more natural way of speaking. Now, her co- co-star of Vartan here is one that I'm not the biggest fan of. I think his performance get lo- lost around those that are around him because there are some much better actors than him i like the smaller role of worthington who i'm a fan of as well brazier curry there is also celia ireland mitchell and then the rest of the cast are solid in what they bring i also just wanted to point out i love that we have the supporting role from john jarrett who's another actor that i'm a fan of and we also get a young mia waska which i didn't realize until sitting down to see this you know this time around but then in conclusion here, I think this is a fun movie. You shouldn't come in expecting too much as this isn't a movie that has much depth. It is a solid nature run amuck creature feature that, you know, has some basis in reality. I think we have a group of characters that we learn enough to worry about and then most of the acting is good to go along with it. The practical effects are solid and most of the CGI is as well. Aside from that, the cinematography works as is the soundtrack that we get here. Overall, I'd say this is an above-average movie, and if you like these types, I would definitely give this one a go. So my rating here from Rogue for 2007 is a 7 out of 10. And the second movie I have for you is 30 Days of Night. This is directed by David Slade. It is co-written amongst the screenplay by Steve Niles, Stuart Beatty, and Brian Nelson. And then this is from the comic that was co-written between Steve Niles and Ben Templesmith. This is from... 2007. It stars Josh Hartnett, Melissa George, and Danny Houston. This is a action horror thriller film that is a co-production from the United States and New Zealand. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDB and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being After an Alaskan town is plunged into darkness for a month, it is attacked by a bloodthirsty gang of vampires. Now this is a movie that i remember seeing in theaters while i was in college a group of us went and i was really excited because i thought it had a great premise it is one that i've seen at least one more time since then but it hadn't been some time you know between this viewing and that last one this would be the first time that i'm you know watching it with a critical eye as part of the summer challenge series for the 2000s thanks to the podcast under the stairs Now, where I want to start my analysis here is that I have read Volume 1 of the graphic novel, which is pretty much this whole movie here. Now, I'm not going to do a full-out comparison because, to be honest, they're pretty different from each other. What I will say, though, is I like what the movie did with where they took some set pieces and shots to incorporate into this movie from the graphic novel, which looks good. Now, as I said, the stories are pretty different, though. Now, where I want to go next would be the concept, which I still love. The vampire lore that we are getting here is the fact that vampires will die if they go into the sun. Having them attack a town like Barrow, Alaska, where it's actually engulfed in something like 60-some-odd days and night is terrifying. These vampires are interesting as well. They are dressed up in fancier clothes than you would expect, but they don't feel that since, you know, the cold is a non-factor for them. They are given their own language for the movie, which I love. Now, despite how they are dressed, they're pretty feral, which I don't mind either. Now there does seem to be some CGI with making them look how they do as there's just something off about their faces but their teeth are razors and they screech in animal-like ways. I also like that they don't want the people of Barrow to you know be turned into one of their kind. This does reveal how they can be defeated which I like as well. Now shifting over to the survivors I like how desperate and how we can see the human spirit drives a lot of this. Now we have Eben who is portrayed by Josh Hartnett is a cop so he's you know trying to do what's best for the people of this town now his wife of Stella who is portrayed by Melissa George used to live there so she has a relationship with them as well then there is Bo who is portrayed by Mark Boone Jr he feels like he's treated unfairly but it almost seems like it's just an act because this is some ways where he you know is being incorporated into the town as he gets a ticket from the moment we first see him and it also kind of alludes to something that happens later in the movie Like I said, he does like to be included and he puts his life on the line when he has to as well. And I really like this idea that something we've seen since the beginning of American Cinema where, you know, that human spirit can't just be stopped and will do whatever it can to try to survive. What I do have issues with here, though, is some of the story. Now, the graphic novel, Eben and Stella are still together and she is a deputy. This movie, for whatever reason, decides to have them split up and she is living in Anchorage and then trying to, you know, drive the emotion through them working things out during this ordeal. I really don't care about it though and there just seems to be much bigger issues than their you know kind of relationship it does make for awkward things when even's younger brother of jake or others call it out that they're married but you know having issues the graphic novel has a great opening and closing images with the sunrise that i think is just much more effective in my opinion there's this interesting thing that happens during the climax as I was saying with the desperation driving things, along with the lack of food and water, a difficult decision needs to be made. The vampires are driving this as they're working on a cover-up. There is this great line from The Vampire of Marlow who is portrayed by Danny Houston about they've done so much work to hide that they're real and that they're just you know things of like legend that they need to kill all the potential survivors and fix what they've done here. It does make for an interesting final showdown that I did enjoy. Now, what I wanna go to next would be the acting. I like Hartnett and I don't think he's a strong actor. For him, I think he has a good look for more of the teen films that he was in. Now, he's fine here. There's just nothing really to write home about there personally. Now, I do like George as an actress especially since she has you know done quite a bit in genre she is fine here but not her best performance it works for what the movie needs and then houston is someone though that i I really like as well he has a presence about him especially as his lead vampire if i did have a complaint i just want more another one is ben foster i wish he was in this movie more as he's just great underrated actor who i wish also you know was in more movies Boone was solid along with the rest of the cast especially those playing vampires what was shocking here is that we have manu bennett i've only seen him in more rough and stronger roles where here he's playing a character that is pretty weak and depressed so it was kind of a different thing that i was i thought he did a pretty solid job with that now what i really want to go to next would be the effects and i'm gonna go through you know the setting here as well i love how cold this movie feels even though they didn't film it in alaska it feels like we were there They did have some snow that was used, and that probably helps. Now, I'm not a fan of the CGI snow that we get to kind of blur the camera. I understand why it's there, and this is kind of going back to to doing shots from the graphic novel. It just didn't work how they wanted it for me. Now, the blood we get is good. They seem limited on what the vampires can do for their attacks, but I like the animalistic way that they look. It does seem like they waste a lot of blood, though, from what they do. Now, we get more of a variety of the kills from the humans to the vampires. There is some CGI here that I didn't always love. But aside from that, I'll go back that, you know, they do take some shots from the graphic novel, which I did enjoy that for the most part. Now, that does help with the cinematography, which was good. So then in conclusion here, I really just enjoy this movie still. I think there's a great concept with a monster that we all know about. It isn't something you would think of, but this would be a terrifying position to be in. Like the vampires that we get the lore of the movie that it introduces there but then to be honest if anything i want more than what we get the effects both the practical and cgi are solid for the most part with some minor issues the sound design helps to build tension and the soundtrack is fine i don't think the acting of most of the humans is that strong but i really like houston and the vampires with that said i think this is a fun popcorn vampire film I would say that this is an above-average movie for me, just missing out on some of the elements to go in that good range. So my rating for 30 Days of Night is a 7.5 out of 10. And then the last mini-review for this week is going to be The Hills Run Red. This is from 2009. This is directed by Dave Parker. It comes from the teleplay from David J. Show. This is also from the original screenplay by John Dombro. And then the story is from John Carcetti. This is starring Sophia Monk ted hilgenbrink and william sadler this is a horror mystery thriller that is a movie from the united states that is currently sitting on a 5.4 on imdb and a 2.6 on letterboxd with our synopsis here being a group of young horror fans go searching for a film that mysteriously vanished years ago but instead they find the demented killer from the movie is real and he's thrilled to meet fans who will die gruesomely for his art Now, this is a movie that I remember seeing on the shelves when I worked at Family Video. For whatever reason, I didn't really know anything about it and decided not to check it out. I think part of this was that the case really didn't catch my attention aside from that I remember seeing it. I have now finally gave it a viewing after hearing about it on the podcasts. And then, you know, it being on the list for the Podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge Series for the 2000s. Now, where I want to start my, you know, analysis here is that I will give credit to the director here of Parker, along with Show for the teleplay, Dombro for the original screenplay, and Carchetti for the story. When looking at the case, I just figured it was another late two thousand slasher, but this movie goes beyond that and is much smarter than I was expecting, to be honest. To expand on this, I want to talk about the obsession from the main character of Tyler, who is portrayed by Hilgenbrink, and then this movie that he, you know, is looking for i'm someone that if you've been listening to my show you know that i'm fascinated with movies of the past the more obscure the movie the better for me and i like watching movies that were deemed lost or just hard to find there are just a variety of reasons for movies like this and there's just a sense of accomplishment now tyler takes this farther he needs to feel that validation and for him he's doing something no one else can it isn't that different from Kan Cannon, and he's just determined to make art, and we see the things unfold here. His madness isn't just that much different from Tyler, they're just focusing on different things. Then there is this urban legend of Babyface. We see through that like cold open that we get in this movie that we don't necessarily know how is gonna play things back in later. And this is a young boy who is cutting his face with scissors, and we see he has his baby doll mask. Now this killer wasn't an urban legend until the fictional move in this movie with the same name was made. I like the idea that we're getting here of art, reflecting life and vice versa. Now there are a lot of layers here and they get unraveled as we go. And I really just enjoyed that. To be honest, I wasn't necessarily expecting what we ended up getting in the end. Now where I want to shift this over to next would be the acting. I've already said that. I love the duality of Tyler and Con who is portrayed by William Sadler. Hilgenbrink is an actor that I've only ever seen to my knowledge as a stiffler in one of the Bad American Pie sequels. He is much better here and although I don't think he's great he does fit the role. Then Sadler is a solid and as his crazy director. I love what we learn about him and his strive for perfection as this leads him to do some horrible things. There does seem to be a social commentary here on making these type of movies and that it takes someone who is unhinged I like to believe that if someone is unhinged and tries to do this, it is a byproduct of them being crazy, not the cause. Sophia Monk was really good as this character of Alexa. I've never been overly impressed with her either, but this one might be one of her best performances that I've seen from the movies that I've seen that she's been in. We also get to see her nude quite a bit, so you know there is that. And then we also have Janet Montgomery as well as Alex Wyndham. They're both solid. I know the former from the show of Entourage where I developed a crush on her. I think her as Serena and then him as Lalo are both horrible as they end up hooking up with each other since you know he's Tyler's best friend. I get it though and I think that what we're doing here is making them complicated characters. Now all those that play babyface in this movie do well and it just helps with this like creepy look and this menacing way about him as you know with the rest of the cast rounding this out for what was needed. That will take me next to the last thing i want to kind of go over here which would be the effects we get a lot of practical ones that looked really good i like the blood and we get some interesting kills and what they do with baby face when the mask is removed i was impressed by what didn't necessarily work for me is that there's a bit of cgi that we get there wasn't a lot there so you know i am thankful for that now what i did also want to comment on would be the editing and cinematography i like the kills that we don't see because they don't actually start like the ones that are actually happening in real time until past the halfway point we are getting to see kills intercut from this original movie and i think that was strategically done to kind of you know satisfy that appetite and not be bogged down too much by story i'd also say the cinematography was well done so then in conclusion here i finally am glad that i stopped sleeping on this movie it is really a smart slasher that has a meta approach and is incorporating some interesting elements to set this apart from others that we would see, you know, later in this days of the subgenre. We also get some solid practical effects editing and cinematography to go along with it. I don't think the acting is great, but it is good for a movie like this. I know and understand the characters, so it is more impactful as things go downhill. The movie does lose itself a bit in the third act and gets a little bit pretentious, I would say, but not enough to ruin it. The soundtrack also fit for what was needed. Overall, I would say this is an above average movie and there's just, you know, some elements lacking for me to go higher. This would be a recommend though if you enjoy slasher movies for sure. So my rating for The Hills Run Red is a 7.5 out of 10, and that's all as I was saying that I have for mini reviews here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. <laughs> Welcome to the Hotel Dormity. How many nights will you be staying? Just... Sorry, I didn't see anyone. Excuse me. Hello? Are you lost? Is there something that you're not telling me? She doesn't ask me I've been in home, Remember. It's like quicksand. The more you struggle... The deeper you get in. and for my first feature review is going to be the night from 2020 this is directed by karosha ahari who also co-wrote this with malaj jarmuz this stars shahib Hassini, noisha noor george mcguire along with michael graham ellister latham Armin amory steph martinez Corinne kavari giamora Leah Oganian, Lily VK, Ali Koishi, Amir Ali Hassini, Hana Rahim Zadi, and Sam Tarazendepour. Now if I did mispronounce any of those names, I do apologize. But this is a horror mystery thriller that is a co-production between the United States and Iran. This is currently sitting on a 5.5 on imdb and a 2.8 on letterbox with our synopsis being an iranian couple living in the united states become trapped inside of a hotel when insidious events force them to face the secrets that have come between them in a night that never ends now this is a movie that i got turned on to thanks to mark nato it was on his list of horror releases for 2021 and on top of that he included it in movies that he really liked from january I wanted a movie that had something to do with being haunted and when i glanced through the synopsis i thought for this fit for my pairing here on centennial club then before i get into the movie itself this is actually the feature-length debut for ahari they do have a short that has not yet been released entitled generations this is also their only film as a writer and this is the same thing for jarmouche who is in a similar position as this being their first film they have written now, Hassini is an actor that has 44 credits, which only two of them are in genre. The first one was from 2012 of The Paternal House, which I haven't seen, and then now this movie. This does appear to be the only movie that I have from with him in it that I have seen, but he was in a movie entitled A Separation that I do recognize the cover when I worked at Family Video. Now, his co-star of Noor has been in three films. This is the only horror film and the only one that I've seen to date, Then there is Maguire. He has been in 16 films. This is the only horror film that he's been in that's been released. It does look like he's slated to be in the upcoming Nosferatu, which is also teaming up with Ahari to be in Generations as well. Now we start this movie off with a quote about multiverses and that there is only one true one. It then shifts us over to a group that are playing a game. We are first given close-ups of each of them, and this is kind of a way to get to know them from what I gather. Our main character is Babak nadari who is portrayed by Hassini, and then his wife of nita who is Noor. then they are at the house of farhad who is portrayed by amory and then being joined by his wife and their friends farhad takes babak into the kitchen where they take a shot together and this draws the annoyance of nita he does this regardless and i believe that the two of them then go into a room to smoke marijuana it is getting late so babak nita and their baby of shadhanam who is oganya decide to head home Babak insists on driving despite having been drinking, and it appears that Nita has a suspended license for driving without an insurance card. Their GPS starts messing up, drawing the attention of Babak and not necessarily paying attention to where he should be going. Something goes into the road where Nita tells her husband to watch out. When they get out to check to see what happened, he doesn't see anything, and then it's decided that instead of continuing on, they will stay at a hotel. Then the closest one to them is an independent and older looking building. As they go in, Nita gets spooked by a displaced man, portrayed by Latham. They are then let into the hotel by the receptionist, portrayed by Maguire. He realizes that there's only one room available, and it is a suite. Babak doesn't care and agrees to take it. This couple's nights continue to get worse and worse. Shabnam is having trouble going to sleep, and in turn, so do her parents. They keep hearing knocks at the door, and and then things coming from the ceiling. Nita does see a little boy, who I believe is portrayed by amir ali Hassini, but then he disappears and then there's other times there's nobody there when the door is opened the couple tries to sleep but no matter what they do things continue to happen these events also turn the couple against each other as they try to survive the night nita does encounter this displaced man again who tells her that they hear the truth morning comes in farsi which is their native language what does this mean and can this couple figure it out before it is too late So that's where I'm going to leave my recap of the movie here. But What really intrigued me to check this one out is I don't believe I've ever seen a movie from Iran, let alone a horror movie. I really get intrigued to see movies from different cultures, especially ones that I'm not familiar with, especially when it comes to horror films. Seeing what scares people or lore from their countries is what really kind of draws me in. Now, for this movie, we are really following this couple of Babak and Nita. They are hiding secrets from each other from their time apart, which is an element that I enjoy. Having been in relationships and engaged to be married currently, we are constantly learning new things about our partner, both good and bad. I like that from this opening party, we see that there's some issues between this couple. They know each other and they can get under each other's skin pretty easy. We also get to know them as they lead up to their time in this hotel. Babak left Nita and I ran. There were some questions if he was going to return or not. Or if she was going to join him in the United States. Something happens with this young woman that we are seeing. This does become an issue for me as there are some questions that I have as to who she is by the end of the movie. He does seem to have problems with drinking and smoking as well. There is also this inherent cultural aspect where he commands his wife around, especially when it comes to their baby. I can't be forgiving of that, but Nita also has secrets of her own. Something happened while she was away and she is trying to live with it. This hotel is making them face different things, and I do think it's a, you know, I think she's a better person with how things play out in the end. Now, there's also some social commentary here. There is a way to look at this, what is going on here, to not be supernatural. Nothing really happens until they get to the hotel room. Then there's a way to see it that Babak and Nita are both sleep-deprived. They could be seeing things and going a bit crazy because of that. Now, I know for me, if I could go even 24 hours without sleeping, I do tend to get more irritable and can definitely become more like anxious about different things and then their baby is doing what a baby does not necessarily sleeping all the way through the night i do feel that there's something supernatural going on here but there is a way where you can look at it like this for much of this movie i enjoy the story and trying to figure things out i do have some problems here though this story feels like something we've seen before i've actually even seen a movie from earlier this year that follows a similar premise what would have worked better for me would be a little bit more into this entity that we keep seeing There's this hooded figure that looks like it is a woman form. I'm not sure if this is something from Iranian or Middle Eastern lore or not. So I'm not really sure if the natives of the area recognize it without needing the backstory. There is also some aspects to this backstory of the characters that I think needed to be a little bit more fleshed out. I never really get bored with how long the movie runs, but there's just a bit too much for me unexplained in the end. I don't need everything, but just more of what I got would have helped. The next thing would end up being here, the acting. I think the couple of Hassini and Noir play off each other well. They seem like they have this history where small things get under their skin. I can appreciate that as it brings a sense of realism. Hassini seems like a character with issues with drinking, and the more we learn, he comes off as irritable. We also get this interesting aspect to this character where he doesn't want to face his issues. Then on the other side, we have Noir. She's given to us in more of a positive light. She wants the best for her family, but she also does have a guilty conscience about something that happened in her past. McGuire adds a level of creepiness as this receptionist in the hotel and kind of just gives these little like weird lines that make you really wonder about some things. Latham and Michael Graham as as a police officer are both solid as well. And the rest of the cast just rounds us out for what was needed, in my opinion. Then the last thing I want to go over would be the effects and soundtrack of this movie. Of the first one, we don't really get a whole lot of them it doesn't also need to have that many. What we get here, though, I do like is that we're using filters and different type of focuses on things. There is also this really cool effect near the end of the movie that I know isn't too difficult to do, but it still gives me an uncomfortable vibe. There is something else I wanna give credit to here for this movie does well is in building the atmosphere. The soundtrack really helps there as well as it isn't one that stands out, but it does what it needs to do. I also think that the sound design with this like baby crying and a child calling out from different rooms or the banging on, you know, like the walls, the door and like the the floor and ceiling, everything like that, that all works. So, real quick, I just wanted to share one little piece of trivia that I found online is that this is the first American film which resales in Iran after the iranian revolution so in conclusion here i enjoyed most of what this movie was doing there is a good atmosphere here with a possible haunted hotel where these characters are faced with secrets from their past the acting is really good and i think that is one of the strongest parts i like the potential commentary as these newer parents and what the lack of sleep can do the effect soundtrack and design there do help with building what is needed I do feel that there are some things that aren't explored here that hurt the final product for me and I would say this is an above average movie just lacking a few things for me to go any higher so my rating here for the night is a 7 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm not going to do a spoiler section I don't really feel like there's enough for me to kind of delve into because we don't get enough of that type of stuff here in the movie so I am going to go ahead and get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. And for my second featured review, here is going to be The Haunted Castle from 1921. This goes by the original title of Schloss Vogendold. And this is directed by F.W. Murnau. This comes from the novel from Rudolf Strauss. This is the adaptation from Karl Mayer. This stars Arnold Koroff, Lulu Kaiser Korff, and then Lothar Minert, And this also features Paul Hartmann, Paul Bilt. Olga Teshiova, Victor Blutner, Herman Valentine, Julius Falkenstein, Robert Effler, and Walter Kurt Kula. This is a crime drama horror mystery film that is from Germany. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being... The castle Volgenold has a few aristocrats that are awaiting Baroness Straschestadt. But first, Count Otischt invites himself. He is believed to have murdered his brother and the Baroness's husband, but he is there to prove that he isn't the murderer. Now, this is a movie that I'll be honest, I had never heard of until I was looking through Letterboxd for horror movies that were released in 1921 here for the Centennial Club episodes. And that is, you know, why I am covering this movie. What is interesting here is that I recognize the name of the director, Murnau, from Nosferatu. And then the writer of Mayer is another one that I feel I've seen some of his movies from him. So, with that, let me get over to that featured notes of these players here. Well, we have F.W. Murnau, or Frederick Wilhelm, has directed 22 films. Of those, five are considered to be horror. The first is a lost film by the name of The Head of Giannis from 1920. Then there is Desire from the same year as this movie. It is on my list to see, but I haven't figured out if it is available or if it's one of those lost ones or not as of yet, but you could be seeing that featured here in the near future. Then, of course, did Nosferatu and Faust. Now, I've only ever seen his famous vampire film and, you know, this one here for review. Then, The Writer of Mayer is one that I was familiar with as he does have 28 films that he wrote. Of them, three are horror, and now I've seen them all. The first one is one of my favorites of all time with The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And the other one is Genuine, The Tragedy of a Vampire, along with this one here. All three of these have been featured on the podcast as now part of the Centennial Club. The writer of the novel Strauss has three adaptations of his work to film. This is the only one that was in horror, though. And then one of our stars here, of Arnold Koroff, has appeared in 38 films. This is his first in genre, and he did appear with Fay Ray in Black Moon, along with Jack Holt from 1934. I haven't seen that one or any of his other movies, unfortunately. And then I'm assuming that Lulu Kaiser Kruff was his wife, and this is the only movie she ever did. And then as for Meinert, he was only in two movies. This is the only horror film. I haven't seen the other one, but it looks to be an adventure film with wild animals called Allen im Erwald. So then I get into this one. It is pretty much solely taking place in the castle Vogelold, where we have Schlosher von. Vogenschahri, not pronouncing that right at all. And this is Arnold Koroff, along with his wife of Senta, who is Kaiser Koroff. Now, they're having people over for a hunt. The problem, though, becomes that the weather is not allowing them to go. The people are all staying inside, hoping that it'll clear. Things get awkward, though, when Graf Johann Ost arrives. This appears to create some buzz as his former sister in law of the Baronin Schafferstadt, who is portrayed. By Toshuawa is coming soon with her new husband the Baron Schafferstadt who is portrayed by Bilt. The scandal here in and the gossip is that Count Oste murdered his brother and then Von Vogelschre informs him who is coming and then the Count declines to leave. He is determined to prove that he isn't the killer. When the Baronet and her husband arrive she is quite upset to learn that Count Oste is there. The only solace she finds is that His other brother and her former brother-in-law of Der Peter Faramond, who is Blutner, is coming up from Rome. He is a priest there, and none of them have seen him in some time. The following day, the weather clears briefly, allowing all the men besides the count to go for the hunt. It is cut short, though, when it rains again, and this is when the count actually leaves. In his absence, Peter arrives. He seeks out his former sister-in-law to talk to her about what happened to her former husband, Graf Peter Paul, who is betrayed by Hartman. The house gets quite nervous though when he locks himself in his room and doesn't answer when they call on him. It is even more shocking to what they find when they open the room. With his disappearance and the return of Count Osta, can they get to the bottom of what is happening here? Or will the Count also be blamed for what happened to his other brother as well as to Peter? This is what I'm going to leave my recap and shift over to actually breaking this down. The first thing I noticed before watching this was that some people were questioning if this movie was really horror or not. Regardless, I was still going to watch this, and I will say, it is interesting that this is considered horror. It does have less elements than some movies that are questionable. What I think that really drives this is that it takes place in this large castle that is spooky... Dare Feremon disappears, and then there is also this murder mystery that we're trying to get to the bottom of. It really is, you know, a different time as well that it came out in. Now, where I really want to go next with the care of Count Oshta. This movie really does a good job at establishing that no one likes him. It is revealed that he's going to be there, and the gossip starts. This works for us to be filled in what they think about him. We know that his former sister-in-law believes him to be the murderer. He is portrayed to be a jerk in the beginning and no one wants him there yet he's still going to make their lives hell by staying in his defense though his name has been drugged through the mud for some years now without really any evidence aside that he is accused and he has the best motive with how things play out here it really is in the vein of what would become known as hitchcockian and it is based off a serial novel which that does make sense there as to a lot of hitchcock films do kind of get based off similar things Now next I want to go to the setting. As I was alluding to as to what put this movie in the horror genre, it would have to be mostly for the atmosphere. We get this gothic vibe of that. It is interesting that this movie is from Germany, but it isn't really leaning into the German expressionism that was really popular at this time. It is much more grounded in reality, and then when Faramund disappears, it makes it creepier. There could be this logical explanation that could happen here, but it doesn't change the fact. There is also the subplot that the Count Osteh has studied the way of the prophecy from India, and he predicts that there you know, will be shots fired for the hunt. He then gets cryptic that there could be more than one as well. This, along with that story, does make it hold my interest. I do hate to say this, though. I did find this film to be a bit boring. A big part of this, I'm assuming, is that it's early cinema. This being one of the earlier murderer mysteries, they don't really have to be different or build on the stories in any other way because this is you know, an earlier one than where they don't have to kind of, you know, throw as many swerves at us. There is this interesting twist to this that, I'll be honest, I didn't see coming. That works for me, and it does help me to get excited for the final act. I did lose interest to a, in a stretch before that, though, as I have been saying. Now, what I do think worked was the acting. Something else that was interesting here is that we aren't getting over-the-top performances as you would expect for a silent film. Arnold Koroff felt that he was his host and, you know, wants everyone to have a good time and is stressed when the guests... That weren't invited or showing up. Kaiser Korov, who is, I'm assuming, was Arnold's wife in real life, as I've said, was solid, especially with trying to calm down the Baronin. Minor is good as this guest who is constantly trying to defend himself. I would be mean if I had to, I'm sure, especially when he does well in conveying these emotions. Built his fine is fine as this quiet guy that I didn't really trust from the start. He really seems to be there for his wife though. And then we have Toshoda. And i'm probably not even saying that anywhere close there is a lot of letters that don't necessarily look like they all go together in my opinion was good as the one who was upset with the count being there it hurts her for him you know being around when she believes to, you know these things to be the truth that he is the murderer i also like Bluthner and the rest of the cast around this out for what was needed and that'll take me to the cinematography here since being in early cinema we don't get much in the way of effects We do have a lot of static shot, and that is fine for the technology. I do like that we get some close-ups of characters that really help to frame them in different ways. The Iris effect is used here as well. I think this works for what was needed in order to build who the character is, and then, you know, focus on their emotions. I did want to comment that this, you know, having some great long shots that show multiple levels of the castle by framing the stairwell, this works for the staircase. This works especially since pheromone's room is on the lower level with the baronins on the room on the upper level so we do get, you know, kind of walking back and forth there and it looks kind of cool. And the last thing would be the soundtrack. It is hard for me that I don't necessarily know if what we're hearing matches up what was originally conceived. The version I saw had this great piano soundtrack done by Neil Brandt. Jamie was in the room and was trying to read while while I was watching this and she said the music was good but it made her anxious. I have to agree with this. And then this is one of the stronger parts of this version and how well it fit for me as well. So there's not really much in the way of trivia for this movie, but this was shot in 16 days and was released before the serialized novel slash chapter had been printed in the Berliner Illustraten. So that was kind of a cool thing there. And then in conclusion, I did like some elements of the silent film. I think the story is really interesting and that the acting helped to bring it to life. The setting of the movie is quite intriguing and the atmosphere is also built along with that from the soundtrack that is synced up to it I did find it to be slightly boring I think that probably due to early cinema along with being one of the first murder mysteries that were out there still worth a viewing to see some of the works from the great Murnau in my opinion and but being a silent film that is coming up on 100 years old now there are still some flaws that I had I'd consider this to be an above average movie though regardless, so my rating here for The Haunted Castle from 1921 is a 7 out of 10. Now I'm not going to do any spoiler section or anything as I was kind of already alluding to that there's not really a whole lot more I can delve into for this movie, so I'm going to kick us over to a musical break before I close out the show. want to welcome you back one last time here and then just to close everything out for the show if you'd like to get in touch with me you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com if there's anything you want to be read on the show just let me know in there or if you just want to give me any sort of feedback that would be greatly appreciated if you'd like to read any of the written reviews on this episode or any of the past ones that's reviews of the dead and that's And then if you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Mishkin Garrett Jr. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. If you want to see any of the written reviews as well on Letterboxd, that's DavidOSU. If you'd like to follow my Instagram, it is DavidOSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And then the last thing I would do and ask you if you could is that whatever podcatching device you are listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe and if you're able to rate and review I would greatly appreciate that again just to kind of figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like just to make this the best show possible. Now for the next episode here on episode number 70 is going to be my Centennial Club number eight. I could only find one other movie that was available to watch that I hadn't seen before from 1921 so I'm going to watch that one which I believe it is called the arrival from darkness i believe it's a czechoslovakian film and then outside of that i also have watched a screener of a movie called dementor that i've already watched and have written my review for it i just need to record everything so those will be the two featured reviews on you know the next episode and everything like that and then i'll also you know sprinkle some more of those podcasts under the stairs summer challenge series films that i haven't seen as of yet as some of the mini reviews and whatever else you know comes my way but i think that's all i really kind of want to get you up to speed with what i will say here in closing is that whatever you do today i hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time this is your tour guide of david garrett jr signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what i needed now to give it the perfect ending